Let's read from Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 15, remembering that chapters 3 and 4 of Galatians, which contain 61 verses, contain one of the most closely and finely ordered statements of Paul in all his writing. There's a certain amount of difficulty associated with the passage, not because it's all that unclear, but because his argument is so tightly wound. And if you think it's hard, put yourselves in my shoes. I've been given the responsibility to open the Word and teach it. So pray for me as you pray for yourself as we look at this passage, that God will teach us exactly what He would have us to know. As Paul continues to give this doctrinal argument that is made up of all the verses in chapter 3 and chapter 4. Galatians 3.15 from the New American Standard Bible reads as follows. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law has been given which was able to impart life, the righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Last week, we asked the question, what is the reason for the season of Christmas? And the answer is very obvious to us who follow Christ, it's the advent of God in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says in the book of Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the visible expression of the invisible God. In the book of Colossians, a little later, this is what Paul writes about Jesus. In Him dwells the fullness of deity in bodily form. This is the reason for the season. God has become man in Christ Jesus for the purpose, as we saw last week, of saving us. Here's a trustworthy saying. 
deserving full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul says, and I am the chief of those sinners, the Apostle Paul says. We are helped very much by this passage of Scripture to flesh out the whole purpose behind the advent of God in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to save us. We saw that last week in verses 1 through 14 of Galatians. Today, what we're going to see is He came to fulfill a promise. The word promise is used eight times in this passage that we're studying today. It's the primary idea that the Holy Spirit would have us to know about the coming of Christ in this last half of Galatians chapter 3. So, the promise we read from Galatians chapter 12 a bit earlier, made first of all to Abram, later known as Abraham, was that he would make of Abram a great nation. And it would be through Abram that all the nations of the world would be blessed. That's the promise. And what was that a promise of? It was a promise of the advent of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what Christmas is about, isn't it? He came to save us from our sins. He also came to fulfill the promise that was made to Abram, whom we now know as Abraham. God has fulfilled His promise to us of sending a Savior into the world to save us. In this section of Scripture, we're going to see the relationship between the law of God and the promise of God to Abram or Abraham. Now, let me stop just a moment and make a few observations about the concept of the law. When the Bible speaks of the law, in its most simple form, it's speaking about the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments. Probably you could say some of them. You might not be able to say all of them. You might not be able to say all of them in their proper order. But we know most of the commandments. What are they? You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. We could stop right there. Because everything else is related to that one introductory command. But the second command is that we shall not make for ourselves any graven images. We're not to make idols. The third one is that we're not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain. Fourthly, we're to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Fifthly, we're to honor our fathers and our mothers. Sixthly, we're not to murder. Seventh, we're not to commit adultery. Eighth, we're not to steal. Nine, we're not to bear false witness. And finally, ten, we're not to covet. This is the law. Now, there are associated laws which are spelled out in the Old Testament which are part of this whole concept of the law. The law sets forth the religion of mankind. Men's duty, men's works, and men's responsibilities. The law must be obeyed if a person is going to trust the law to save him or her. The problem with that is we have to keep it perfectly. In other words, if I miss one opportunity to obey the law of God, I'm in deep trouble. There's no way I can work my way out of that according to Scripture. The law says on the behalf of God, thou shalt not or thou shalt do certain things. Now let's set this in contrast to the promise of God. The promise of God given to Abraham 
and associated promises. So many promises come off of that one primary promise. The promise sets, the, sets forth the religion of man. We hear God saying to Abraham, I will, I will, I will. Over and over again, I, 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 God is the one who, by grace, takes initiative in our salvation. He overrides and overrules the law by His grace, His sovereign plan for the salvation of mankind. Grace, unbelievable. We do not have an inkling of an idea, frankly, about the matter of grace. We have some idea. We know it's God's riches at Christ's expense. We know it's God's merit freely given to us, not based upon anything that we have done or based upon anything that's inherently worthwhile in us, strictly God's grace. It's God's plan. It's God's initiative. It's God's grace. That's the promise. You could just insert the word grace where we read the word promise in this passage of Scripture. Well, I'm going to make seven, four statements, rather. Uh, seven, I'd want to. i love to talk. You know how that goes. I'm only going to make four that really come right out of this passage of Scripture. And uh, that's where our message should always come from the Word of God. We know that. And these statements all have to do with the relationship between the law of God and the promise of God. Now, here's the first statement. The law does not change the promise of God. Look at verse 15. Brothers, I speak in human relations. Now, Paul was a great teacher. And as much as our attention is demanded when we read some of the writings of Paul, like these in chapters 3 and 4, we have to really concentrate. But Paul gives us a wonderful illustration out of everyday life. He's going to talk about a covenant. And actually, as we're going to see, he was probably having in mind a will that a person wrote and signed and, in effect, ratified in the life of the people to whom he wrote these words. Look at the last part of 15. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. According to Roman law, much like American law, according to Roman law, a will could be modified. A will could be nullified. If a person decided that he wanted to write a different kind of will, he could destroy the previous will and write another will. Wills could be added to. Codicils could be added to wills, just like they can in our culture within the law. So Paul was not talking about Roman law here. More likely, he is talking about Greek law, which obviously predated Roman law. And Greek law said that once a person produced a will, not even that person could change the will. Once it was ratified, it was beyond being changed. And this is the illustration that Paul uses to describe the relationship between the law and the promise of God. God made a will. And the will is reflected in the promise which he made to Abraham. That Abraham would be one from whom a great nation would come. And in addition to that, that all the nations, not just his offspring, but all the nations of the world would be blessed through this man. 
Look at verse 16. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Now, let me stop just a moment. Why just one seed? Here's why. Because if you and I are made right with God, there's only one way we can be made right with God. We're in Christ. If I'm not in Christ, I don't have any hope of being justified before God. We've already seen in the early part of Galatians 3 that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith in God. He was not justified by works of the law. Why? The law didn't even exist. You know how many years elapsed before the law came into play? 430. Can you go back 430 years in your understanding of the history of the United States? Where would that put us to go back 430 years. Put us in the 16th century. Jamestown was not even founded. That's a long time. That's a lot of years to pass. And that's how long the promise existed before God gave the law to Moses and through Moses to Israel. So we see that the seed is Christ. Do you see Jesus is the key to everything related to our salvation? From beginning to end, it's all about the work of Jesus and what He's done for us. Look at verse 17. What I'm saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Now, I'd like you to fix your eyes on one word in verse 17 near the end of the verse. It's the word ratified. The word ratified means that this will, as it were, or covenant, if you will, was validated by its being ratified by God. And the word ratified means it was, in fact, ratified, which we would guess in a moment of time it was ratified. But it stretches out all the way to December the 13th, 2015, and it will stretch out not just through history, but throughout eternity. Once God ratified it, it was done. Therefore, the law does not change the promise of God. Look at verse 18. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Now, bear with me a moment. Humor me for just a moment. The words translated has granted. It's just one word in the original language. It's the word from which we get our Noun, grace, it means to give. And the tense of the verb suggests God has given to Abraham as a gift the promise which was that he would be made a great nation through a seed, namely Christ. And what it says is, just like the ratification of the will, which goes out throughout eternity, the same tense of verb is used here. God has granted, he's given it to us, and it's from now on, Nothing can undo the work of God. If you have been made right with God by being justified by faith in Christ alone, that is the truth of the gospel. It's not by works that you've been saved. It's simply, solely, completely, only, and I wish there were other adjectives I could use or adverbs I could use, that we are made right with God. And once made right with God, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
It cannot be undone. The Bible says in the book of Romans 11, 29, that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. This is an irrevocable will that God has established. And aren't you glad that it is? The law cannot change the promise of God to Abraham, in an effect, the promise of God to us who are in Christ. In John 1.17, the Gospel writer says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized in Christ Jesus. Here's a second statement about the relationship between the law and the promise. The law is not greater than the promise. Look at verse 19. Why the law then? This was a question, undoubtedly, that the false teachers in the Galatian churches were raising. They were calling into question the integrity of the gospel of Paul. They did not believe the gospel that he preached. And Paul is working feverishly under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to clarify for the Galatians and in effect for us 2,000 years later almost what the gospel is. The truth of the gospel is we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone and not by works of the law. In the late 1800s, actually, excuse me, the late 18th century and the early 19th century, there was a man of German descent born in Hanover, Germany. And from an early age, it was clear that he was an unusual child. He had a love for music. And he was particularly drawn as a child to military music. So when he became a young man, and Germany was calling for enlistees into their army because they were entering into a war, he joined the army and signed up to be in a military band. He composed music as a young boy, and he composed military songs. This man was also very precocious in the sciences. In the sciences, He was an astronomer, a budding astronomer as a teenager, but he became a great astronomer later. His name was William Herschel. And as Herschel marched into war in the vanguard of the German army, as they met their foe, as he was part of the military band which was leading the force of German soldiers into war, he was not prepared for the horrors of war. And it terrified him as he saw people dropping into his side. And he did what so many other young men did in that war. He turned and he ran. He knew that his desertion was punishable by death. As he measured his options, he decided he would have to leave Germany and he fled across the English Channel to Great Britain. He sought to be a man who had the asylum that came from living in Great Britain. He wanted to become anonymous, but because of his prodigious intellect and his great gifts, he could not remain anonymous. He became very famous not just in Great Britain, for his musical and scientific accomplishments, but his fame grew all over Europe and all the way back to Hanover in Germany. As the years became decades, he rarely gave a thought to the sentence which was hanging over his head, a death sentence, until another German came to live in England. His name was George. He was from Hanover, of all cities. And he was of the house of Hanover. He was royalty. 
And his bloodlines connected him with Great Britain. And he was crowned king of Great Britain. He knew about William Herschel. He had heard about his desertion. And Herschel was nervous for good reason. Not long after King George took the throne of Great Britain, an emissary from his court came, knocked on the door of William Herschel, had a note summoning him to come to the palace. So, with fear and trembling, this great musician, scientist, made his way there. He was asked to sit down in a chamber adjacent to the throne room. And in a few moments, the emissary who had brought the command to come to see the king brought out from the throne room a piece of paper folded with the seal of King George on it. Herschel opened it and he read this statement, I, George, do hereby pardon you of your offenses against our great land. And in that moment, this royal pardon was given to this man who was a fugitive, this man who was under a death sentence, this man who was condemned. In that moment, he was acquitted by the king. He had a royal pardon. And in the eyes of the law of Great Britain, he was a justified man. He was set free. Do you know that's what happened to you and to me if we have been justified by faith in Christ alone? We have been forgiven of all of our sins, not just some of them. We were under a death sentence. We were under condemnation. But there is therefore now no condemnation, absolutely none. The language is very clear in the Greek text. None whatsoever for those who are in Christ Jesus. We've been justified. Why would we want to go back to living under the heavy-handedness of the law once having been made right with God. That's the question we looked at last time. The law is not greater than the promise of God because the law is inferior. Look again at verse 19. Why the law then? Now let's skip down to the last part of verse 19. Until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. In other words, the law was in effect until Jesus came and Jesus fulfilled every aspect of the law. Therefore, we who know Christ, the law has nothing to do with us in the sense of ruling our lives anymore. The temporary law is inferior to the permanent promise of God. Now, here's another way that the law is inferior, not only because of its temporary nature, but because it required a mediator. Look again at verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator. This is what happened. When Moses went up on Mount Sinai, and Deuteronomy 33.2 tells us this, Psalm 68.17 tells us this, Acts 7.53 tells us this, Hebrews 2.2 tells us this. When he went up there, God gave him the Ten Commandments, the law. But he didn't give him directly. He didn't give it to him directly. This is what he did. He gave it through angels. We're not privy to how all that worked, but we know that's what the Scripture tells us. He gave it to angels, who in turn gave it to Moses, who finally gave it to Israel. And in effect to us. Before we came to know Jesus, we were under the law, just like the descendants of Abraham were and still are under the law. And the good news, though, is for us, 
who know Christ, we're like Abraham. Did Abraham have any mediator between him and God? Well, look at verse 20. Now, now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. What was Abraham doing? If we had had time, we would have read the 15th chapter of Genesis. What was Abraham doing when God reiterated the covenant with Abraham? Abraham did what God said. He took several sacrificial animals. He cut them in half. It was nighttime. He became drowsy. He fell asleep. And God made the covenant with Abraham. He was sleeping. What did he do? Did he do anything? Nothing. This is the promise. We can do nothing to make ourselves right with God except to throw ourselves upon His mercy and to ask Him for His grace, which He is always ready to give to us. Isn't this a great gospel? This is good news. It's hard for us in our own pride to accept because there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is the way of death. You know what the way of man is? It's religion. It's our doing something for God to merit God's favor. We can't do it. It's already been done for us by the only one who was qualified to do it, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the third statement regarding the relationship between the law and the promise. What is the first statement? The law cannot change the promise. The second statement, the law is not greater than the promise. Here's the third statement. The law is not contrary to the promise of God, to Abraham, in an effect, to us. This is given to us in verse 21. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This is another question that the false teachers were asking about the gospel that this man Paul was preaching. And Paul is intent upon making sure that the Galatians know the truth of the gospel. We are justified by faith in Christ alone, not by works of the law are we made right with God. Let's read a little further here. He says, may it never be in the strongest possible terms. He says, there's no way that the law is contrary to the promises of God. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. Now, here's one thing that tells us why the law is given. It's not given to provide life for us. The law cannot give life. The law only reveals certain things about us, the most important of which is that we're sinners. Look at verse 22. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin. Do you know what he was talking about when he says the Scripture has shut up all men under the law, under sin? Do you know what he's talking about? He's talking about passages like Isaiah 64 which tells us that all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before God. All of them. Anything I can try to do on my own, even before, if I had lived in Paul's day, I didn't have Galatians. I didn't have all these other books in the Bible. But I would have had the Old Testament Scriptures, which uniformly teach that we can't be made right in our own strength. And we come before the law. The law does not give us salvation, but makes us see that we need a Savior. Romans 3, verse 20. Listen to what it says. It says, Through the law, no man will be justified. 
We know what that means, made right with God. Could you say that with me? Through the law, no man will be justified. In other words, through my keeping of my understanding of what the law is, I'm not going to be made right with God. I'm out in the cold if I depend upon the keeping of the law of God. The law shows me to be a sinner, shows me my guilt, shows me that I'm under condemnation. But the law is good, isn't it? Romans seven twelve says the law is unholy and it is good. And by saying that, in my coming under the instruction of God through the law, it's His law, it's His Word, what ha- happens is I see I'm unholy, I'm not holy, I'm unholy and I'm bad. And I'm in deep need of someone to come and to rescue me out of the domain of darkness and translate me into the kingdom of light. And that someone is none other than Jesus Himself. We cannot come to Jesus to be justified in Christ until we have first come to Moses, understanding that we are condemned sinners. You know what the the big problem in America is, I think, in the church? It's we have not preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have preached a cheap version of the gospel. Because people have to know they're lost before they want to be saved. They have to see just how bad off they are. And they have to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We don't see many people anymore under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They want Jesus for what Jesus can do for them. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. People have to know that they are condemned by their own sin before they can appreciate the gospel of Christ and come to know Jesus. Have you come to that place in your life where you know that you must throw yourself upon the grace of God if you are to be saved? In American evangelism, we've cast our pearls before swine. You know what the, what the pearl is? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not appreciated because people don't see the need for their sins to be forgiven. They're just looking for someone to come and sort of pep them up a little bit. Give them their best life now. That's what people are looking for. They need to understand that the gospel includes some bad news. The bad news is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin is a grievous offense against God. And then people are ready to receive Christ. The gospel has been given to us. But the law is what causes us to come to receive the good news of Jesus Christ. The law reveals sin, but it also prepares the way for Jesus to come into our lives. Let's look at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody. That's a good translation of the word. It was a word which was used to describe protected by a military guard. It's the word that was used to describe in Acts chapter 9. Remember when Paul was preaching the gospel right after being saved, he started preaching Christ immediately in Damascus. And the king of Damascus was a man named Aretas. And Aretas put a guard around the walls of the city in order to capture this man. That's the word that is used by Luke in Luke 9 to describe what measures the king took to try to trap this man, Paul. And you remember what happened to him. He must have been a pretty small guy because he was put in a basket and he was let down 
through a window in the wall of Damascus, and he was able to escape. So, we have been confined. We've been held in custody by what? By the law of God. And then we've been, as the verse goes on to say, shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. This word means hemmed in or cooped up. It's used in Luke 5 verse 6 to describe the hemming in of a whole school of fish when Peter and his friends threw a net out, as Jesus said, on the other side of the boat, and they had so many fish, those fish were cooped up in the net. That's the idea. The law makes us prisoners. We are prisoners. We're enslaved. That is one of the functions of the law, and it's purposeful because it gets us to the place where we are so desperate for freedom. We've sought freedom in everything imaginable, in other relationships that are not godly, in pursuits that are not godly. And we find ourselves still empty, and we're hungry for freedom. And it's for freedom that God has come to set us free, is what the Bible says. So, the way for Christ is prepared by the law. And we're prisoners, as the law would say. But we're not merely prisoners, we're minors, with an O, not an E. Let's read this a little further in verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Tutor is not necessarily the best interpretation of this word. The word sounds like this in its original rendering. Pedagogos is the word. You hear the word pedagogy or pedagogue, which comes from it. The word literally means a child conductor, someone who leads a child. And in the upper echelons of Greek Roman culture, what would happen is, if a man had a slave that was a trusted slave, he would assign that man to be the pedagogos of his son. And this is the way the pedagogoi are described. In drawings of pedagogoi, this is the way they're depicted. They're depicted as having a cane in their hand, following a boy who is obviously going to be taught by a teacher. So this tutor was not a teacher in our way of thinking. Rather, the tutor was one who was responsible to get the boy to the place of learning and to make sure the boy behaved while at that place. So this is what the law is to us. It's our pedagogos. It drives us. It enslaves us, as it were. And these boys whose fathers owned the slave who was the pedagogos, they were at a lower echelon even than the slave who was their tutor, their child conductor, until they reached maturity. And what we know is they reached maturity when? Well, look again. Verse 25. Now that faith has come, the promise has been fulfilled, Jesus has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So we become what God intended us to become. But the law was our conductor to rebuke us and to punish us, to discipline us, to prepare us for maturity. So we're ready to receive Christ. Do you see the images here? Prisoner, a person who's a child and has no authority, has to do what the slave tells him to do. The law is God's tool for that. We're not born again through the law. We are brought up to the point of making a commitment to Jesus though, so that we can fulfill what he called us to be and to do. Now here's the last 
statement about the relationship between the law and the promise. We've got three so far. What are they? The law does not change the promise of God. The second one is that the law is not greater than the promise of God. And the third one, the law is not contrary to God's promise. Rather, the law is complementary. It's cooperative with the promise of God. It's necessary for us to be saved. Here's the last statement. The law cannot do what the promise alone can do. Let's look at verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, and you have been clothed with Christ. 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The law cannot give us oneness with Christ or with the Father. What gives us oneness with the Father? The promise and our embracing of the promise so that we are one with Christ. Did you notice in this passage there are four references to being in Christ or with Christ in this short passage of Scripture? So, what are we in Christ? What are some things which are true? There are three things that emerge in this last little section. One, we are sons and daughters of God. Isn't that what verse 26 says? For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He is our Father. Notice what the Father of God, fatherhood of God is based upon. We have to be in Christ. Now, what does that tell us? God is not the Father of everybody. He's only the Father of those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're not in Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church, how many times you've been baptized, how many churches you've been a member of. If you're not in Christ Jesus, you're not a child of God. God is our universal creator. We were all created by God in the image of God. God is our universal sovereign, our king. He is the ruler of all the affairs, not just on earth, but in the universe. He is our sovereign, whether we're in Christ or not. But he's only the father of those who are in Jesus and I love this verse in 1 John chapter 4. The Bible says God is love. And he says that perfect love casts off fear because fear involves punishment. And he who fears is not perfected in love. Do you know our God loves unconditionally? There are no strings attached to the promise except that we believe. And trust in Him alone. This is a phenomenal thing to consider. We serve God out of a heart of gratitude as a result. We don't have need of a tutor anymore to crack the whip on us. It's our love for the Lord. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts, Paul writes in Romans, by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. He has given us a sense of love for the Father. Because we understand the great debt which we owe. Why? Because we understand what sinners we were before we came to Christ and what great forgiveness we have experienced. And that colors our relationship with our Father. I stand before you as a man who is really part of a very small majority, minority rather, of people. I'm sorry to say that I am. But I had a father who was godlike in this regard. 
in the way he loved me unconditionally. I can never remember my father ever being cruel to me. Never. Never disciplining me. He did discipline me, but never disciplining me out of anger. I can never remember my father withholding anything from me which I needed and many times that I wanted. But you know what motivated me to be obedient to my father? It was his love for me. His unconditional love for me. And I wanted to please my dad, not because I was fearful that he wouldn't love me anymore, but because I knew how much he loved me. You may not have that kind of background, but there's nothing you can do about that. But what you can do is recognize who your father is. He's much greater than my father, who was an excellent father. Remember what Jesus says to fathers? He says, if you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father in heaven know how to give good gifts to you? Your Father in heaven loves you unconditionally. And that in itself should be incentive to obey the Lord. You should want to. I cannot think about not wanting to obey God as my Father because of the incredible debt which I owe to Him and His unconditional love. Let's read a little further in verse 27. Another aspect of this relationship we have to God as our Father. For you all are, son, are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, who were baptized into Christ, rather, have clothed yourselves with Christ. The word have clothed is a word probably which in Paul's mind was prompted by his recognition that when a boy became a man, he was given a new toga. The togal virilis, it was called. The toga of manhood. Clothed in a new garment. And when we come to know God through Christ, we're clothed in a new garment. And our union with Christ is internal. It's based on faith. In this passage, the word faith is used five times. I'm not talking about the entire passage we're looking at, but just in the closing section, faith is mentioned five times. Baptism one time. Do you for a minute think that Paul who has already spent a lot of time combating the suggestion that you've got to add something to faith to be saved, as were these false teachers saying you had to be circumcised to be saved. You had to do certain laws and do certain rituals, keep certain festivals in certain feast days, certain Sabbaths in order to be saved. Do you think for a moment that he would say, after having harped on that so strongly, but you've got to be baptized to be saved? You see what baptism is. It's important, very important, because it's the outward symbol, the signifying that something has transpired in my heart. So here's a question I have for you. Have you been justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone? Have you? Then why haven't you been baptized? If you know Jesus, what's the holdup? Don't you want to declare to the world that you love Christ and Christ loved you and gave His life for you? Of course you do. If you really do love Him, you're not going to delay. And some of you say, well, I was baptized when I was an infant. My question to that is, do you remember it? The Bible says, repent and be baptized because of the remission or forgiveness of your sins. Could you repent when you were an infant? No. Nope. You can only repent when you know you're a sinner and you've turned to Christ and you've given Christ control of your life. That's it. So our baptism is something which 
does not secure our union with Christ. Our faith in Jesus alone secures our union with Christ, but it signifies our union with Christ outwardly. Now, here's the second thing. We're sons and daughters of God by virtue of our being in Christ. Here's another thing. We're all one. Doesn't that make sense? If I'm in Christ and you're in Christ, we're one in Christ. Doesn't that make sense? Perfectly, doesn't it? Look at what is said here in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We who are in Christ belong to each other in such a way that what once separated us no longer separates us. Now, what separates us? Well, there are three suggestions here, and they're universal. They were in Paul's day. They are today. Race separates us. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Do you remember what the Jewish male would say every morning when he would rise? The first prayer he would say, I thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, but a Jew. I thank you, God, that I'm not a woman, but a man. I thank you, God, that I'm not a slave, but a free man. This was the prayer that Paul was taught in every self-respecting Jew would know and would pray every morning when a male Jew would arise. That's the prayer that he would pray. But then Christ, there is no racial distinction. Now, obviously, some of us are black, some of us are white, some of us are brown, some of us are red, some of us are yellow, and some of us are a combination of several races, right? But we're one in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're equal In our need for salvation, we're equal in our inability to earn or deserve our salvation. We're equal in the fact that God offers salvation freely in Christ to all of us. We're equal. I love it that in the body of Christ, it doesn't matter what color you are. It matters what's in your heart. Jesus is in us. And we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Only Jesus could pull that off where people are separated by their prejudices, and all of a sudden the Lord just brings them together and makes them one. And the good news is that not only is this distinction of race erased, but also the distinction of rank. There's neither slave nor free. We have no say-so over our birth, who we were born to, where we were born, how much intelligence we had, how much opportunity we had. We had nothing to say about that. But in Christ, we're equal. We're equal. And gender separates us, male and female. In my lifetime, there has been a lot of warring going on between the genders. But in the body of Christ, there's no place for that. Nobody is superior to anybody else in the body. You understand this, don't you? If you understand the grace of God and you know how much a sinner you are and you were and you were saved, you don't have any room or any inclination to want to rise up and lord it over anybody else. You just want to be like Christ. You want to serve people in the name of Jesus. You want to serve Jesus in your home. You want to serve Jesus in your workplace. You want to serve Jesus in your community. You want to serve Jesus especially in your church as you reach out and love people. The greatest magnet... To draw people to Jesus Christ is the love of Christ exhibited among the people of Christ. Where we are not just, hail fellows well met. We say, hi, how are you? Fine, see you later. Next Sunday, maybe. But we love people. In the name of Jesus, we we lay down our lives 
It hurts us when we hear things like, or have, like the things that's happening to the Plowden family. It hurts us because we're part of the same body. Distinctions still exist. We're not fools. Distinctions racially and in rank and in gender. There are some differences, but you know they don't matter anymore for those who are in Christ. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't sweat it. You're now Christ's freed man. Were you a freed man when you were called? Don't sweat it, because we're all equal in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord for that. This is a beautiful thing about the gospel and its impact upon us if we're in Christ. And this explains, by the way, why there's so much racial tension, so much tension between the classes, so much tension between the sexes. You know why it's there? It's because people had not been justified by faith in Christ Jesus. That's why we have preached such a dumbed-down, poor gospel that it doesn't change people essentially, fundamentally. Christ is not ruling in their lives. Here's the last thing. Verse 29. We are Abraham's offspring. And if you belong to Christ and you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Well, I thought only the descendants of Abraham. Well, you're right. But what is a true Jew? A true Jew, whether that person is a natural descendant of Abraham or a Gentile. According to the Word of God in Romans 3... A true Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly by circumcision. A true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly by the circumcision of the heart. I am just as much an offspring as Abraham as Isaac was. Not physically, but spiritually. That's what counts. When we get to heaven, we're going to be connected spiritually, mainly. Some of you find that hard to think about because you love your family so much and it's right for you to love your family. Don't miss here. But there aren't going to be any married people in heaven. We're going to be one in Christ. We're all the offspring of Abraham. Now, I want to complete this message by some observations. We who are offspring of Abraham who might be called Christian. I don't particularly like that word because it's just so watered down in our thinking. But for the lack of a better word, Christians find their place in Jesus. They find their place in eternity in Jesus. Our lives has, have been hidden in God with Christ, or with God in Christ, according to Colossians. We're in the heavenlies in Jesus, and we have a Father forever. Our place is found in society. We have each other our brothers and sisters in Christ, and in history. We are at the tail end of a very long line of people who come from Abraham. Can you imagine how many people before us came to know Jesus and are in that train? But we're in it. Thank God we're in it. By the grace of God, we're in it. And that gives us significance Regardless of our race, regardless of our rank, regardless of our gender, regardless of what anybody else thinks about you and me, Christ is in us. And He dignifies every human being in whom He lives. Unbelievable. Conversion answers this big question. Who am I? Do you know who you are? I'm a man in Christ. That's it. 
and you're a woman or a man in Christ. That's it. And because you're in Christ, God is your Father. The church is made up of people. The true church is made up of your brothers and sisters. And you are an offspring of Abraham. Are you under the law still? Are you depending upon works of law for salvation? Are you under the promise of God? Are you in Christ? Or are you in sin? One last word from God's Word. Psalm 145, verse 13 says, The Lord is faithful to keep all of His promises. He has promised you, if you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. That's the only way you can be saved, by the way, is to trust alone in Jesus. Would you bow your head? Have you made such a commitment of your life to Christ? Oh, dear friend, I wish I could make it for you, but I can't. You have to make this decision. And so I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you to trust Jesus alone right now for eternal life. Don't delay. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Don't let the devil scam you anymore. Don't let him deceive you anymore. Come and give your life completely to Jesus today. Would you do that in your heart? Just say to the Lord, Lord, cry out to the Lord in your heart. Say, Lord, I am a sinner. I see myself as a man in need of forgiveness. I see myself as a woman in need of your forgiveness. Oh, Jesus, please forgive me. Take control of my life. Lord, thank you for hearing these prayers. I'm sure many people heard you today speaking to them through your word and have trusted you. Now give them the courage, Lord, to step up and declare their faith in you publicly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.